invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to the book of Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. Just a a brief catch-up. We are making our way through this wonderful revelation where Jesus pulls back the veil between time and eternity and shows us things as they really are. Uh, things from the perspective of heaven. We um, last time we're looking at chapters eight and nine, the seven trumpets, and we've studied the first six of those trumpets. And if you remember, uh, that was two weeks ago, so I uh, won't be surprised if you don't. But if you remember, the set, the trumpets <clears throat> were revelations of God's judgments on the world, but they were partial judgments—a third, a third, a third—and um, they were judgments that were meant to awaken the world to the reality of a final day of judgment and a call to the world to repent. And so that's where we ended at the uh, end of chapter 9. But the the very sober note that people did not repent. Uh, In spite of all the the signs that God gave to the world uh, and continues to give to the world, this is current history that the revelation here is speaking of, in spite of of all the earthquakes and disasters and wars, uh, people do not repent of uh, their sin and turn to the Lord unless God uh, changes a heart. Well, now we have an interlude. Uh, So before we get to the seventh seal, which we'll come to in chapter 11, verse 15, seventh seal being the final day of judgment, we have an interlude, and uh, in, the, in chapter 10, we're going to see um, the sovereign Lord who reigns over us and the mission that he's called us uh, to take up in the world. And so let's give our attention to chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, <clears throat> and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there should be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets." Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Our Lord Jesus Christ, this is your word, this is your revelation given to your church. And we ask that you would give your spirit to help us to understand and to believe that our Lord hearts would be touched and lives changed as we see you in all your glory. And we receive again your commission 
as your church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Dennis Johnson, in his uh, excellent commentary in the book of Revelation called The Lion and the Lamb, he begins his discussion of uh, chapter 10 by quoting a poem by the, uh, the poet uh, William uh, Butler Yeats, uh, an Irish poet. Uh, the, he wrote this poem in 1920 entitled uh, The Second Coming. Uh, 1920, uh, Europe is still reeling from the incredible devastation of the Great War, World War I. Uh, the Bolshevik Revolution in, in Russia is in full swing uh, on its way to claiming 9 million lives, uh, 9 million Russian lives. And Yeats expresses his sense that civilization uh, was unraveling uh, with this poem, The Second Coming. And this is what he wrote. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. A hundred years later, those words seem to be quite relevant. Anarchy does seem to be loosed upon the world. And there's a passionate intensity in our culture today uh, to tear down uh, created norms, uh, to tear down the value of a human life, to tear down the value of um, God-given sexuality and marriage. The ceremony of innocence is being drowned in a flood of uh, sexual perversion and confusion. I read an article just this past week uh, written by a, a Christian mother who um, found out that her fifth grade daughter, uh, going to a public school, had been assigned a book that this, uh, this lady um, described as a primer on how to hook up. It included graphic depictions of sexual encounters by a young teenage boy. She asked the teacher if she could possibly uh, have some other book as an alternate uh, that her daughter might be able to read. Uh, she was denied that by the teacher. She took it to the school board and was scorned as backwards and ignorant um, and denied there as well. She did a little research and found that uh, very few people show up to vote for school boards. And so she, uh, uh, looking at her community, realized that if she could just rally some of, her Christian, uh, some of the Christian community to come out and vote uh, for better candidates, that they could easily place uh, new people on the school board and thus have a direct impact. And so she found three people who were willing to run, and they began to go to their Christian community asking for their support. What she found was tremendously discouraging. She found that um, the local Christians were afraid of being ostracized, even by taking the small step of voting for uh, fellow Christians for the school board. And so they, uh, they did not turn out, they did not vote, and, and uh, they lost. And so the school board now then continues... Uh, to require, require fifth grade girls to be indoctrinated in hookup culture and no exceptions are allowed. The center is not holding. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate <laughs> intensity. However, while Yeats wrote truth, it's not the whole truth. 
Uh, that is how things appear to us from our earthbound perspective. If you're just standing here on planet earth and you're looking around you at what's going on, um, the second coming written by Yeats seems very prescient, very true. But, but God invites us, Jesus invites us in the book of Revelation to, to take a different perspective, to, to recognize that the way the world occurs to us is not necessarily the way the world actually is. That there is a different perspective that can be adopted, and from that perspective, we'll get a, a different view. And the perspective we're invited to, to take then in Revelation is the perspective from the throne of God. To realize, the, to look at the, at the world that we live in from the perspective of heaven. And, and from that perspective, we recognize that the center is absolutely holding because the center is King Jesus, He is the center of all created reality. Yes, the devil and his host are full of in, uh, passionate intensity, but every ounce of their evil intent and uh, intensity is under the full sovereign control of King Jesus. The ordering principle, then, of human history is not inevitable human decay, but invincible divine sovereignty. It's a lesson we have to be reminded of over and over and over again, because we so easily live according to what we see with our natural eyes instead of according to what we can see with the eyes of faith. Hebrews, uh, Revelation chapter 10 is given to uh, help us with our sight, to see things again as they actually are. We, uh, and we have this interlude, as I said, in chapter 10, the trumpets are sounding, God's judgments are coming upon the world, partial judgments in time in order to wake the world up, to call men to repentance. And yet, as we see at the end of chapter 9, men do not repent. They don't repent of their, uh, their sexual immorality. They don't, they don't repent of their idolatry. They just continue on. Uh, headlong in their, uh, their rendezvous with divine judgment. So that's the world in which we live. You see, a world without excuse, rushing towards judgment day. And in this world, we, the church, need to remember that we have a mighty Lord, a sovereign God and King who rules not just the church but everything and that we that lord has given us a calling a mission in this world and so in hebrews I keep saying hebrews in revelation chapter 10 we have a sovereign and a scroll and that's just our two points this morning a sovereign and a scroll now let's give our attention first to the sovereign then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. Uh, there is some uh, debate about the identity of, of this mighty angel. Um, many believe uh, that, that this is some angel closely connected to Christ and the reason they would say that is because there's so many things about this mighty angels that seems to uh, reflect Jesus. And I, I just think a better interpretation, and I'm not alone in this, is that th this mighty angel is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Every description about this mighty angel is also a description that we find in, in scripture about Jesus. So, uh, but you might say, well, why is he called an angel? Well, the, the word angel means messenger. Jesus is the great logos of God. But you'll also find in the Old Testament where Jesus appears before his birth, uh, he's referred to as 
the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, for instance, appears to Joshua in Joshua uh, chapter 1. The angel of the Lord shows up to him. Uh, that's Jesus appearing. And so the angel language is not, is, uh, should not put us off. But, but, but there's so many evidences here. Notice uh, he comes down out of heaven and he's wrapped in a cloud. Uh, both of those um, markers would, would be reminding the early church of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision. Let me read it for you, verse 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came, descending one, like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was, was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Who did Daniel see? He saw Jesus. Wrapped in a cloud, coming down out of heaven, given a kingdom. That's exactly the Jesus we've been studying in the book of Revelation. That's the Jesus who was taken up in a cloud and who said, uh, he promised he will return with the clouds of heaven. And there's other divine imagery. Uh, there's a rainbow above his head, a sign of God's own covenant faithfulness. His face are like the sun. His legs are like fire. That's both references we find in Revelation chapter 1, describing the real Jesus. And so I think it's, it's safest just to say, this mighty angel is Jesus, the king. What John wants us to see is his stance and his work. Notice where he stands. He set his right foot in the sea, on the sea, his left foot on the land. Um, Jesus is clearly, unequivocally, uh, unequivocally claiming all authority, all power, everywhere for himself, right? What does he tell his disciples before he, he, he ascends into heaven? All, all authority and power has been given unto me. Not much, not most, all authority and power has been given to me. And so he plants his right foot on the sea, the realm of chaos and death. He plants his left foot on the land, the realm of human rebellion, and he rules there. He's the king. We easily fail to appreciate the full reality of Jesus' sovereign authority and power. I think we tend to uh, subconsciously just assume that, that sovereignty means that Jesus is somehow able to take evil and unexpected things and turn them to good ends, to make lemon, uh, lemonade out of lemons, right? He's, he's able to take bad, unexpected things, things that the devil does, and turn them to serve his own purposes. Uh, we tend to think of Jesus like a Marvel superhero. Uh, Jesus and the devil are in this mighty conquest, contest, and Jesus, uh, he might lose some battles, but he wins the war. Well, uh, that is just not how the Bible describes Jesus' sovereignty. Jesus never loses a battle, ever. Ever. Every detail of the battle, every time, is determined and ordained by Jesus. 
The authority, you see, of Christ is absolute, even over the devil. The devil only does what Jesus allows him to do. We saw that already in the book of Revelation. The four horsemen of the apocalypse are sent by the authority of Jesus, and their, their, um, their destruction is within borders set by Jesus. The four angels of the apocalypse are, set, uh, are given authority by King Jesus. His authority is, is absolute. Nothing happens apart from his sovereign command. Heidelberg Catechism uh, 28, I believe, question 28, talking about the providence of God. Just uh, wonderfully says, nothing can move or be moved without his command. Nothing can move or be moved without the command of Christ. That's, that's just incredible. That's awesome. Birds do not fly from tree to tree without the command of Christ. Nothing can move or be moved. That means that every detail of your life is by the authority under the sovereignty of King Jesus. Now, the, the, the part of that that's painful is that, is that means that Jesus ordains hard, painful things to happen even in the lives of his children, the lives of those he loves. When his good friend Lazarus died, his dear friends, Mary and Martha, both rebuke him. Lord, if you had been here, he would not have died. They, they saw the death as Jesus' negligence. But Jesus, speaking of the death of his friend Lazarus, said this was ordained for God's glory, that you might be able to see the glory of God. In other words, that hard things happen by God's decree for God's purposes. Now, again, that, that, that's a hard truth at times, right? Some of you have experienced devastatingly painful things. Some of you are in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances right now this morning. And I don't know why Jesus is ordaining those things. We're going to see there, there are things that belong to God. The secret things belong to God. I don't know why. And some people will try to comfort them by saying that, that he's not ordaining these things, that, 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 that the devil is just doing his worst, and, and, and what Jesus promises is to turn them for our good. But, but let's just, if we could just think that through very quickly. What would you really rather have in your life? Would you rather have a life in which Jesus is desperately trying to make the best of things that go wrong and the evil and the pain that we experience, where he's sort of picking up after the devil and trying to set things right, or would you rather a life in which Jesus in every single detail is sovereignly working out his good purposes even though they are painful and hard? Because I, I think, wouldn't you rather the second? I would. That, that, that there's, there's reason, there's order, there's nothing amiss. There are no accidents, no mishaps or mistakes in my life, in your life, if Jesus is, if his sovereignty is absolute. And, and then to remember that absolute sovereignty in the context of who Christ is. And, because we need to remember that though Jesus ordains hard things, 
devastating things, even for his children. He is not untouched by the grief of them. So he, he ordained the death of his friend Lazarus, and then he wept at the grief of it. And he gave his own life to restore it. So he, he, he's not a sovereign, uh, far removed in the quarters of heaven and, and sort of casually um, ordaining difficult things for his children and, and, and just saying, trust me. He does say, trust me. But he says, trust me, because he wants us to understand that we have a high priest who's able to sympathize. He knows because he experienced. And he gave his life, suffering the judgment of God so that our losses might be restored even as our sorrows are understood. And that our losses will be restored in such glory, in such magnificence, that, that, that the hardest things will seem light and momentary, Paul says, in the last day. Jesus, friends, wants his church to understand his loving, sovereign rule over the whole world and our lives so that we think and experience our lives differently. Jesus is not our, 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 our mighty advocate in the, in the sky just trying to make the best of what this world and the devil might throw at us. He stands with one foot on the realm of chaos and death and one foot on the realm of human rebellion and he rules, he reigns. His sovereignty is absolute. That's important <clears throat> when we think about his work. In verses uh, 3 through 8, we have this interesting uh, description of a vision that John sees. He hears these seven thunders, but he's commanded not to write them down. Everything right, the book begins with, write down what you see and hear. And yet here we have an exception. Don't write this down. There are different interpretations of the meaning of this. Some think it, it, this is similar to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, 4, where he talks about um, that he had a vision uh, and, and of heaven, and he says, I heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak, that there are things that are too high for us, too glorious, too holy, too much. And there are things then that belong to God and that, that will be revealed to us right in God's time in a, in a new heaven and a new earth, but not now. So instead of digging into, some commentators try to do, into what is not being revealed here, I think it's much more helpful to, to just, let's look at what is being revealed. What does, want Jesus, what does Jesus want us to hear? Well, he wants us to hear that, um, for one thing, there is no more delay in the sovereign purposes of God for this world. So verses 5 and 6, the, the angel raised his hand to heaven, swore by him who lives forever and ever. So he swears by God. Some of you think, well, then how could it be God swearing by God? Well, we have instances in the Bible, Hebrews being one of them, where God swears by himself because there's no one greater to swear to. But he, but he swears that there should be no more delay, end of verse 6. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. The point is, there's, there's 
uh, we are living in, in the last days. There's, there's nothing more to happen in redemptive history before the heavens are opened up like a scroll and Jesus descends and it is judgment day. I heard someone say recently, uh, it is always later than we think. We're closer than we imagine. Uh, there's nothing standing in redemptive history between right now and judgment day. There's no more delay. And in this period of last days, of the last days, Jesus is sovereignly at work so that the mystery of God will be fulfilled in the day of the seventh trumpet. Is that clear? No, that takes a little unpacking. Um, what does that mean? Well, the seventh trumpet, we're going to see this when we get to chapter 11, 15. I don't have time to, to unpack all that this morning. That, but that, when that trumpet sounds, history is done. When the seventh trumpet sounds, um, human history in this world is, is wrapped up and, and we enter into eternity. Jesus is at work so that the mystery of God will be fulfilled on that day. In other words, that the mystery of God will be completed when the trumpet sounds. So what's the mystery of God? Well, the mystery of God is the gospel and the work of the gospel. Paul talks exactly about the mystery of God in Colossians, the book of Colossians, where he says the mystery of God is that God in Christ is reconciling all things to himself. And that God is making out of all peoples and tongues and nations of the, of the world, he's making one new humanity, reconciled to God, sealed with the name of Jesus Christ. One new humanity who will stand before Jesus on the last day and worship and rejoice forever. That's the mystery. It's the mystery of the gospel. And so Jesus wants us to see, friends, that in these last days, he is exercising his sovereign authority in every detail in order to fulfill the gospel mission. He's not about many things. Jesus is not about, um, you know, keeping the food supply going and keeping nations headed in the general direction they need to go and, 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 uh, and dealing with a lot of personal matters of a lot of different people and over here uh, trying to keep the church afloat. He's not doing many things. He's doing all things to one end. Everything is to the end of Jesus accomplishing the gospel mission. All his authority is vested in the interest of the gospel and the welfare of his bride, and everything serves those ends. I think it's just magnificent that, that Jesus gave his life for the church and that Jesus now in his glorified self exercises all the wonder, all the dominion, all the glory, all the honor, all the strength that he has for the church. And all of human history then must serve Christ's purposes for his bride and for a new heaven and a new earth where we will live with him. So everything that you see in your newspapers, kingdoms rising and falling, nations making war, earthquakes and disasters and diseases, Jesus Christ is sovereignly 
ordaining and ruling, and through it all, he's gathering his church. Through it all, he's fulfilling his gospel mission. And that's the context of the church's call. And we look then, secondly, at the scroll. Then I heard a voice that, uh, the voice I heard from heaven spoke again, saying, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. Uh, the angel who has absolute control, Christ Jesus. And so, so John does. He goes and takes this little scroll. This is not the scroll of chapter 6, the scroll containing all of God's purposes for human history. This is an open scroll. Uh, this is God's message for this world. Uh, this is the gospel. The gospel both including the reality of a day of judgment, the reality of a holy God and man's sin against him, and then God's uh, response to that truth in Jesus Christ, and the invitation for people to come repent and be saved. John is commanded to take that and eat it. It's a, it's a way of, of, of saying it needs to become your very own. Ezekiel, does this, we have the same thing where Ezekiel is shown a scroll and told to take it and eat it because it's God's message for Israel, and, and, and Ezekiel is going to be the, the one who proclaims it. And it's a message, as I said, both if you read Ezekiel, judgment for those who don't repent and abounding grace for those who do. John is given that scroll and, and he's told it's going to be sweet and bitter. It's going to be sweet and bitter. It's going to be sweet in your mouth. There's an unparalleled sweetness to the word of God. If you, if you take it and you receive it in, in your soul. Let me just remind you of some of the sweetness of God's word. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Those are sweet words. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Those are sweet, sweet words. This is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ died for sinners of whom I am chief. Have you ever just, have you ever just sucked the sweetness from those words? Christ died for sinners. Come to the waters, all you are thirsty. Come, you have no money. Come buy and eat wine without money, milk without price. What a sweet word. Scripture's full of them. Full of them. Words that you can just open your Bible and, and take and taste the sweetness. Receive the sweetness. What Jesus commands John, he commands his children to do the same. Let, this, let these sweet words become nourishment for your soul. Take them to yourself. Open your Bible. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. But those sweet words come with a bitterness. John says, I took them and they were sweet. But when I had eaten them, there was a bitterness. There was a, there was a stomach ache. Uh, there was a pain. Because you see, these sweet words are not only meant for our own consolation, the, soul, the consolation of our own soul, but they're meant for a proclamation to a lost world. And so John is commanded, you must again prophesy. Here's a 90-year-old man. 
on the island of Patmos, suffering because of his faith. He's been suffering for his faith for years. And Jesus doesn't say it's time to retire. Jesus says you must proclaim, prophesy, speak the truth of the gospel. Both the reality again of judgment and the reality of grace. That's a charge that Jesus gave not just to John, but to all the apostles and to the church at large. It remains the call for the church today. This is how the sovereign Christ accomplishes his gospel mission. He takes the word of God, the preaching and proclaiming of that word, and he accomplishes his purposes. He builds up his church. He gathers his elect. He judges the world. This is, this is how it works. And the church, we, we do this together. In, in, in a thousand different ways, we, we proclaim this message. I was talking to Eric Kur about the, uh, the mission trip to Chattanooga, and, and uh, he had an opportunity to go and talk to some uh, men from the neighborhood sitting up on the porch. And so Eric uh, went up and asked for a glass of water and then asked for a chair. And uh, they brought him out one, and, and uh, he sat down and had a conversation. And, and they asked him, what are you doing here? He says, well, we're here for, uh, on a mission trip. He said, and they said, no, what are, you, what are you doing here on the porch? <clears throat> and why are you talking to us like this? And Eric said, well, it, uh, it's because I believe that there really is a hell. And that people really will go there. And that Jesus Christ is the only way to avoid the judgment we deserve. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. But that is not a message that will be warmly received. Jesus told his disciples, and he tells the church today, the world will hate you. We need to recognize that persecution is not an abnormality. It's not a glitch in the, in the system. It's a design feature. This is how it works. And we have millions of brothers and sisters around the world today who are experiencing the bitterness of these sweet words because they, they, they speak them or believe them in a context where their family hates them and their neighbors hate them. The world around hates them. And, and, and I'm convinced, friends, that we are increasingly going to experience the same. If we take a stand for these sweet words, if, if we let ourselves be identified as, as people who believe these sweet things, uh, we are going to experience the wrath of this world. And that means that we have three choices as we stand in, in this world that will not repent, a world under judgment. We have three choices. The one choice is to change the word of God to make it more palatable. The mainline churches and increasing uh, other churches as well are adopting this approach. And so they celebrate what God declares to be an abomination, things like abortion, homosexuality, the sovereignty of self. Those things they celebrate and they denounce what Paul celebrates as glorious, the atoning death of Jesus Christ for the justification of sinners. And so we just move those things, right, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, uh, denounce those things, we're going to celebrate these things, and the world will not hate us anymore. And they're absolutely right, the world does not hate them. It ignores them. It doesn't hate them. How could it? it? They're just like the world. That's an option. Another option is to stay silent about the word. Just be stealth Christians. Don't tell the truth about uh, what you believe concerning your sin and your need for Christ and the glory of God in Christ. Don't let your fellow workers know that you're a Christian. 
And that's by far uh, uh, the, the approach taken by many believers today. It allows us to have our comfort even though it fails to pursue the mission. We avoid the bitterness, but at the cost of faithfulness. I hope you recognize that option one and option two are not options. There's only one option for Christians. Take up the mission. Taste the sweetness. Rejoice in the sweetness. Embrace the bitterness. Rejoicing even there that we have... Uh, we share in the fellowship of suffering with Christ and rejoicing in the fact that we have nothing to fear, nothing to f- be afraid of. That's the point of the vision. As we, as we see our, our society sort of collapsing into an abyss of darkness and confusion and, uh, and unbelief and evil, there's nothing for God's people to fear. Uh, Dennis Johnson writes, writes this, uh, about the unique place of the church in the world in this day. He says, on the one hand, Christian believers will be targeted for attack by those who hate our king, hate his purity, hate even his mercy. On the other hand, God calls us to stay involved in the broader community, even as it rushes pell-mell towards its rendezvous with God's wrath. And here's the question. Can God keep Jesus' little flock safe as they stand, it seems, defenseless in the crossfire? As the world rages against God and as, and, and as God promises to judge the world, is, can God keep his little church safe? Yes, friends, he can. King Jesus is sufficient. And that's a repeated message in Scripture. Peter, in fact, picks this up in first, uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. He says, If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah in the days of the flood, if God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to extinction, but rescued righteous Lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. You got the example of Noah in the days of the flood. You got the example of Lot and his family in the days uh, of, of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. You have the, the preservation of Israel when God brought judgment against Egypt over and over and over. And Peter says, let's just, let's just connect the dots. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Now that rescue might include suffering and it might include death. It might. It does. Remember uh, Jim Elliott and his friends they sang, we rest on thee, our shield and our defender. Strong in thy name we go. And the next morning they went and, and were speared to death. Jesus doesn't apologize. He's able to keep us safe. Death does not need to be feared. We have nothing to fear. And so take that home with you today. Whatever circumstances you're facing as frightening as they might seem, we have nothing to fear. Not if this is telling the truth. Not if Revelation 10 is inerrant. God breathed. What if Jesus was actually talking to you this morning and inviting you to look at things from the perspective of heaven? And what if that Jesus had given his very life for you? to assure you of his love, to rescue you from the judgment you deserve. And, and in that, he 
promises that he is exercising all of his sovereign authority, ordaining all the details of your days for your joy, for his glory, and he just asks you to believe it. Are you able to do that this morning? To actually take the circumstances of your life and to put it in the hands of a sovereign king and to trust. Let's pray together. Father, uh, you are speaking this morning to fearful people. We're afraid of pain. We're afraid of loss. We're afraid of being ostracized and scorned. We're afraid, Lord, maybe of broken relationships, of an unknown future. We're afraid maybe of our own weaknesses. And Jesus, we need to hear your voice saying, do not be afraid. You stand with a foot planted on the sea and on the land and you exercise all your glory, all your authority with perfect wisdom and skill on our behalf to the accomplishing of your purposes. And we do not need to be afraid. And Lord, I pray then that we could take that courage from a new, with, a, with this new perspective into a lost world. And we could call others boldly to, to Jesus Christ. And that we would, we would show in this world that though we are weak, he is mighty and strong. And though we don't have all the answers, we don't know why things happen, but he does, and we trust him because he gave his life for us. May we honor you, Jesus, with faith, with hope, with confident joy even until we finally see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's sing together um, Trinity Hymnal 565 as we just commit our life to Christ, all that we have, all that we are to the cause, all for Jesus. Let's stand to sing.